0: Hi Saurabh. Um, so today, let's let's talk about cancel culture. Uh, recently, cancel culture is back in popular discourse. Um, it, uh, I think, started with the MeToo movement. Some people say that it's sort of been amongst our myths for um, like ages in different forms. Like, people have compared the French guillotine to cancel culture um yeah but also it's never been the same right with uh the i mean with social media and with access to internet uh, cancel culture is not limited to one state one locality or one region it's one issue that now everybody has a say on everybody is in on and everybody has an opinion on um so let's just start there i guess what what is your opinion on cancel culture? How do you perceive it? Or uh, have you ever been a part of it? Just what's been your journey with interacting with cancel culture?
1: So far? That like my journey with cancel culture, just someone who was like dealing with this uh, in the context of social media. I mean, of course, like you mentioned there are obviously like various versions of these that you can point to in history and be like, okay, there's a lot of similarities in the way people responded to like terrible things happening and with like people being guillotined and whatever. But uh, I think when me too happened obviously is when cancel culture came back with like a reckoning of sorts i think and uh you were confronted with these massive like this whole landscape of of problematic behavior in from people in really powerful places uh who you know were suddenly being forced to the table to talk about not just the horrible things they've committed or the horrible things they've done or accused of, of doing because those horrible things have always happened, but also come to the table and, 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 you know, acknowledge the amount of power they've had, which is why they escaped any form of accountability. Mm. And obviously we saw that with like, you know, in Hollywood with like Harvey Weinstein or, you know, with like a Kevin Spacey or like an R Kelly and all of these people. Um, and then you were also, but then the thing is, it didn't end there. Right. So like it, it just, the spread obviously, and you had like the list, with Raya Sarkar, you had all these fucking professors uh, from like, uh, you know, different universities and stuff you had. So, and then you also had, so it was, I feel like there was this massive landscape of really powerful people and this whole conversation that was emerging and then you just saw that conversation being had in like different places about universities and then in your, the microcosm of your own space, you had like, um, you know, people around you be talking about problematic friends talking about problematic relationships, problematic encounters in like a semi-professional space or like, you know, you know, formal student sort of a space, all these things. So uh, I think similar to a lot of people, I had like those different levels of interaction with it. One, which is very divorced from you and you're just like, okay, yeah, this is so screwed up, you know, and you you get to talk about it. Like it's just out there. It has nothing to do with you. And then also conversations about people, you know, you know, and like, Uh, stuff that's happening around you and even if it's not someone you know well stuff that's happening in your university someone that you interact with so then that's like always more difficult because the closer to it you are then the less you know uh, abstract the less newsworthy or whatever it is you know like if it's just news I mean it's just happening there yeah these are all bad people and we all have wonderful lives we are all great but then if it's people you know and then then that's that whole aspect of okay um this is problematic and you know the kind of maybe the social capital this person has enjoyed has been exceedingly problematic but uh, if I enjoyed similar social capital and I was in similar spaces then I heard a couple of the the jokes that didn't land too well or you know like things that I kind of cringed at were we also like sort of partaking in this uh, space where you know you may not have been responsible for that act of abuse or whatever that is the reason this person is being chastised, but you were part of like a culture in that sense that encouraged some of that. So uh, for me, I think personally, I don't, I didn't, I didn't have to deal with, and I know a lot of people had to deal with this in college, at least I didn't have to deal with someone that I knew a very close friend who, uh, you know, had been accused of something and, um, you know, and something terrible and you had to sort of then deal with your relationship with that person and everything basically, you know. So I didn't have that with someone I, I was very close to, but like I knew of people that we were working with and like stone bodies and stuff like that. All of us, you know, just, there were I mean, there are people that we knew about and I think that, uh, that also raised questions because you would have to go back and work with this person. You have to do meetings with this person. You have to like do whatever else you're required to do. And then you have like this raging conversation on like social media about, you know, what this person has done. The number of times he's gotten away with it. Uh, in some cases like professors also being told about like you know people but uh you know they, they're not really being in a position to do anything about it all of that um so while i was in it i was like this is this is really you know uh, i'm just happy that right now things are being shaken and i think that's what and that's what that's why cancel culture just became um i think it it found its home in in a lot of people because of just that anguish of the fact that nothing ever happens to anybody who's done something terrible you know and the fact that institutions don't work and like your sexual harassment counties in college don't work and and oh wow you're going to go to a police station and file an FBI I mean that's not going to happen so all of these things so just general apathy and distrust of like multiple institutions and then you have the situation where we're finally able to just shake something yeah you know and just like force this conversation and even if we can't actually get these you know like obsolete institutions to work we can ensure that we chastise this person and like make sure that they don't enjoy the same amount of social capital they do. They're shunned from like events and whatever else. So I think it just gave people a lot of power. And uh, I, I think that I also found comfort in that, to be honest, the idea that if institutions don't work, at least we're able to sort of, you know, navigate our way around it. And, and at least there's like, there's this is, it just felt like a paradigm shift in the way you have to deal with relationships because it felt like you no longer had to just sort of, you know, like, talk to two, three people about it, and then it just disappears. It felt like you could actually ensure things change for this person who's like possibly done terrible things, irrespective of, you know, whether it's proved to be done later or whatever. So you don't feel that burden of it having to be proved. And you have to go through a formal system and you having to, you know, possibly recount terrible experiences in front of someone else. So I think all of these things, you know, uh, we all engage with in some capacity, but then it's been a while since that moment in time happened, that, splinter you know and now you have the benefit of hindsight you have the now you you have the benefit of reflection uh and you see where this has gone since that moment Mm -hmm. because it's been like after me to happen cancer culture still stayed on you know after that initial conversation where it's not just limited to uh people accused of you know predatory sexual behavior it's it extends to different kinds of forms of abuse different forms of prejudice whether it's you know xenophobia or racism or you know, uh, sexism, you know, or homophobia, whatever it is, you, it's extended to all those those avenues. So now, you know, you're, you're confronted with cancel culture, um, essentially still operating in the place that it was born in, in social media uh, and sort of being, uh, you know, a, a response to people not so much engaging in, uh, predatory acts or engaging in like microaggressions or problematic behavior by themselves. But now it's also broadened to engage, to sort of, you know, re- respond to people who said things, Yeah, you know, so that's when, I mean, then comedy has been called into question uh, or, you know, like someone's tweet from like 10 years ago, comes back to haunt them if they're, you know, asked to host the Oscars and stuff like that. So like right now, at least uh, with the benefit of reflection and looking at, you know, where we are and after that moment in time, you know, uh what, what cancer culture really means. Uh, I have to say this just makes no sense to me. Um, it seems it seems like a terribly lazy and futile idea. Uh and the reason I say this is because that moment in time was like a moment that ideally should have been a reckoning in terms of everything needs to change. You have to change the way people can approach the police, you have to change the way that, you know, uh, cases are argued before courts, you have to change the way witnesses are treated, you have to change everything. That that should have been the reckoning. Because ultimately, if you're talking about justice, then it boils down to that, you know, like what are you doing with your, your mechanisms of justice? Are you fundamentally reshaping it by using this moment in time that offered us this opportunity for reckoning? But I think because of the nature of, of Me Too and, and the space it gave people to just sort of, you know, like force a response without dealing with formal... The formality of like a system. I think that, that sort of comfort has also led us to a point where uh, essentially it's so, it's so dangerous, right? Like there's almost a complete, like just abdication of, of faith in, in systems that are supposed to respond. So that has gotten even worse. So it's not like we're looking at how to revamp the system that's just disappeared. But now it's just in our own, like little kangaroo court. This is what we can do. This is the power we can exercise. Know, so, I think you
0: say that right because, yeah. um, yeah, in a way, it did feel like reckoning, but also if you look at cancel culture on the whole, it's sort of even worse than assist in than the castle system that we currently have because there is no mercy, there is no space for human. Um, interaction right there is no tone t- or tenor there is no human face to cancel culture because all of this is happening online so in a space for you and no punishment is ever enough and there is uh, you know because it, it's a moral punishment it's it's a space that you are forever condemned away from and then so how do you come back from it um, how do you ever get uncancelled With
1: I mean, that's, that's interesting, right? Apart from the fact that, uh, it, you know, we, the cancer culture is taken away from actually addressing the systemic gaps in our justice system. There's also idea that it doesn't offer opportunity uh, for fixing harm, essentially. You know, like we can call these fancy words like restorative justice or whatever else, but the point of something that's fundamentally rehabilitative or restorative is to restore, mm-hmm. is to like mitigate harm and restore, uh, you know, like some degree of personhood, at least for the person who's been, you know, abused. That's the point of, Of fixing things that we don't fix it because we feel like you know oh every human being should be treated so wonderfully we fix things because that's the only way we can actually move forward and live with some sense of personhood and ultimately why do we have like why do we address crime why is committing crime an issue why do you have systems that address crime because the idea is that for the person the people who are affected you're supposed to restore personhood that's basically it right uh, and that, I mean, obviously, uh, cancer culture essentially doesn't offer that. And like the the comparison you made is so valid because even a carceral system and one that's extremely punitive, you know, for life imprisonment or whatever, you spend like 15, I mean, you know, not necessarily life in prison, but you spend like 15 years uh, in prison, you come out, you still have more of an opportunity then uh, to perhaps then, you know, like to uh, make amends and sort of essentially restore, you know, be part of various processes that restore the harm that you've caused to people apart from, of course, spending time in prison. Uh, but in the way cancer culture is supposed to operate now, obviously that that space isn't there. So you're looking at something that's, that, that's uh, you know, just a lot more exacting than even your punitive system. And our punitive systems aren't great. So, I mean, that in itself, I think, is an issue. Um, but specifically this point about, you know, restoring harm, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the first part of this that needs addressing is the question of proportionality. Mm-hmm. Because if your response to and the guillotine is good example, right? Like if if your response to every affront, you know, to, uh, to decency, or every affront to like your ideology, or every affront to things you believe in like equality, and whatever else, if your response to each and every problematic act is the same, then there's no proportionate or determinate response to what you think is a problem. So if complicity is treated the same way as an act of abuse and your response to both is that both these people should be canceled, where is your understanding of proportionality and how is that not important because proportionality justice can't exist without proportionality, right? Like there, there, there has to be a degree to it because then otherwise how is that accountability,
0: mm-hmm. you know, so
1: that, so that I think is, is the first part of it, but also this idea of restoration, right? And the reason it's important like I said, is is not so much because it's not so much about the person, the perpetrator, the person that did these things. Mm. The rest of justice is not is not to sort of apologize, uh, you know, or or have society, you know, just treats seriously or problematic behavior in light fashion. Mm. The idea is that from an instance we've, you know, one of the things with even the meter movement was, you know, focus on victim center justice and all these things. That's the main reason restorative justice is such a big sell for people because it actually centers the victim and the reason it does that is because the idea is to mitigate harm. So like in restorative justice process, that's why they all require communication. They all require like the victims, their offenders, offenders' families, victims' families all sitting at the table um, through various kinds of processes and actually engage. And the reason reason that's the format is because in the absence of, of just, you know, like being able to face the other person, uh, which can be very brutal and very painful. It's just not possible to for people to move forward from there. Yeah. And then the question that's inevitably asked about that sort of an understanding of how do we respond to you know problematic behavior is that, but then where is the punishment? Where is the accountability? But the accountability doesn't lie in punishment. That's only one idea of justice, right? The, the accountability lies in you being part of a process to mitigate harm. So punishment is not even in the it's not even in the conception. It's not even something that. That is like discussed because that's not even the goal. Uh, and I think obviously with cancel culture, you don't have that because uh, if I'm complicit for being friends with somebody, then the response is the same. If I've uh, seriously, you know, offended and done something terrible, you know, uh, engaged in sexually predatory behavior or, you know, abused like a power, position of power or whatever, the response is the same. I mean, that's just, it, it's kind of insane, actually, you know, to think about like, like all those responses are the same. It just makes no sense. And it doesn't require me to change. I had this conversation with somebody like a little while ago uh, and they didn't take too well to it. Okay. And it was basically, I'm like, fine, I'll do this terrible thing. Okay. I am a sexual abuser. I've done this terrible thing. What does you canceling me look like? What does you canceling me really look like? I can't use my social media. Uh, I probably am going to lose. Some of my friends, uh, because I can't speak to them, because now they're like, "You're a, you're an abuser," you know. We just can't talk to you anymore. Uh, get off all social media. Don't never post anything again, or at least for the next few months or a year or whatever. You're not going to change the various privileges I have in my life in terms of the social privileges, the caste privileges, the privileges that make it easier for me to get employment, uh, to network, to do all the things that you know help me live the Indian dream or whatever. You know, to build a career and stuff. None of that gets affected. My life in the most important sense, is really not affected. I don't have to deal with, you know, an FI being filed or something. I don't have to worry about it. There's nothing going to show up on my record. I'm good to go. I just need to like, keep my head down for a while. Mm. Uh, you know, possibly find new friends and like different circles and, you know, slightly more problematic circles where my problematic behavior is a little more acceptable. And I'm good to go. Your cancelling has done nothing for me. Yeah.
0: You know, but so... In the Indian setup, I think also it leads to um right wing trolls then thinking it's acceptable to um gang up, use violence, and then, you know, use the same method that was used to, you know, like cancel culture, started off, you know, we were able to justify it saying, oh, they were they were sexist or they were racist. But in the Indian setup now, we see so many things being cancelled by the right wing, be it like Sabya Sachi's, campaign trail or be it tandavs um, obscure references to <clears throat> the hindutva politics of the ruling government there were just so many things right but it was all of this was easier um, to do now because at some point all of this was done in a more acceptable morally convenient way and now it is now a justifiable way for them to do it as well, because it is morally convenient for them as well. So, yeah, I mean, it does have repercussions in this way, even if it's not an individual that is now pushed into finding a different set of friends, but also has like a larger political ramification of um, the opposite ideology than using the same methods, which is even more damning because it's a lot more violent when it comes from the right that
1: you call you call that also cancelling because that's essentially what it is and and that's the that's the interesting part you know like within typically like liberal circles and liberal discourse and liberal conversation like even the the conception of that also being an act of cancelling is not there because like you just fundamentally associate that with no. that's you know like right-wing trolls trolling and you know just basically shutting off conversation, not willing to engage with you, just canceling you without engaging with, you know, what you're saying or your message. And it's kind of funny, because while saying that the entire point of this also being, you know, like the right, the right form of cancer culture is sort of lost, you know, because that you don't, you don't consider that to be cancer culture, because it's so divorced from what you think cancer culture is. But that's essentially what it is, right? You, you offer people no opportunity to, engage with you uh, with regard, you know, why they've put out this ad or, you know, why they don't think it's offensive to your beliefs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't use a- any legitimate process to address concerns that you might have with this person and your response to different kinds of uh, offensive messaging is again, the same. Yeah. Stop you from putting out the ad, stop the film from being released, stop the video from being, get Amazon Prime to pull down down, whatever it is. So it's, it's virtually identical to like, what we see in terms of the common patterns of cancel culture, but we just don't have that vocabulary for it because it's, you know, it's the right that's doing it. You know, it's very different.
0: It's clearly a troll.
1: Yeah. A troll, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. You mentioned uh, that cancel culture g- takes away from justice being more victim centric. um, And so, so I mean, it, it definitely does make sense in that way because Uh, to cancel somebody you require a mob of people you require more than the one victim um and so in so many senses it has to be people without knowing the context without knowing the facts which i mean that this will come off wrong because the entire me Too campaign was about believing the victim unquestionably but also cancelling requires the the proportionality is a lot more the trade-off is a lot more you are trusting someone blindly uh, to then go off on the perpetrator uh, offensively bullying them telling them that they don't matter that their lives don't matter and that they don't deserve um, to have jobs or a life or you know so many things so So there is, I think cancel culture also perpetuates this another culture of getting offended on behalf of other people. So even if it is not a sexual, uh, like a predatory sexual behavior, it it can be a joke that is misunderstood. So even if I have not watched the entire um, show or I have not been following a certain comedian, but I know a friend whose politics I trust and they are offended and... So, I mean, it follows that I'm also more likely to get offended on the same thing and repeat the same arguments that they do without even engaging with the material or um, forming my own opinions and thoughts on it. So I think an uh, an unsuspective victim of the cancel culture is uh, the rest of the audiences that hasn't been canceled yet because now with the pressure to conform and with so many... Um, Thoughts and ideas already and such strong ones already being put out there, um, people don't have the bandwidth to form their own ideas about what they think, and they're not. You might be wrong, but there is no space for you to then be wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you You said like. You said like multiple things, but like, you know, the first thing is <laughs> the first important thing you said was, um, you know, this basic, I know people hate this word. Okay. But like this idea of due process, yeah. right. And my, and that's again, obviously an obvious, very obvious issue with cancer culture, because uh, you know, someone says that this person did something uh, and, you know, you trust the, the source of this information and, and this person might be somebody you care about, or that, you know, somebody that your friend knows that your friend Uh, has like a relationship and and so you're like okay this is my side of the line now and this person has done this terrible thing unbelievable that they've done this terrible thing and then you go ahead you you steamroll you know to do whatever needs to be done to address their actions and you don't know the story you don't know uh, what actually happened uh what you know what the situation of what happened uh does the person uh you know who's sort of in this very specific instance without this being any indictment of a movement because that's usually what people fear they say you no know, oh my god this is an indictment of the movement no it's not you know but like somebody uh has like a vested interest to te- tear this person down that's just human nature it's just a very normal thing and they have used this opportunity to do so now you feel that you can't address that because then it's an indictment of the movement i'm like movements aren't that weak it's just yeah. It's just, it's not limited to one person, you know, ha- essentially using this moment in time for like their benefit and, and the process, like somebody gets hurt because they've been like the subject of, you know, like a personal issue that's been sort of framed in this really very scary way, you know, so that's one part of it. And that's why I mean, due process, I, I know people hate this word, I feel already bad using it, but like due process is important, you know, and I feel that there's a conflation of two things that happened, that that happened, I think in the context of me too. Uh, where people sort of in my opinion at least lost the plot Mm -hmm. now when you say due process that also comes to like a lot of legalistic procedures that aren't actually useful to a determination of a final judicial outcome they're not useful they're objectively terrible procedures that we need to make more Mm victim-centered the kind of questions that witnesses get asked for example the effort it takes for a woman in this country to be able to go to a police station with a bunch of like problematic people in that police station have to get a complaint registered. So like there are multiple problems with due process because it's just so time consuming. It's so, uh, you know, like you're, it's laced with moral judgment from multiple stakeholders in the process. Uh, especially if you're, you're perceived to be a certain kind of a person and all of that. So there are multiple issues. We all know this, but that shouldn't, I mean, that's no reason to adopt like this blanket repudiation of everything associated with the due process. Right. So like, if you, Again, so this this goes back to the point of fracture when Me Too happened. That should have been a moment of reckoning to address these gaps in due process because the underlying principle of due process is, is key. We can't escape that. We can't be like, we don't need this because then there's just no sense of justice. You need due process. Why? To ensure that the final outcome that you arrive at, if it's judicial or otherwise, is the most accurate, most truthful, most just outcome that there should be in that situation and that you don't end up doing something that's just... Uh, you know, like vengeful because that's the alternative to justice, right? Yeah. That's the reason you are supposed to have due process and and have like two people being able to uh, tell two sides of a story, like, you know, simple principle of like the adversarial system. Mm. And obviously, that comes with all this baggage, but I feel like when you, when you be like, oh man, all these due process idiots, uh, you know, like, you know, we have this moment in time where we don't have to vibe this these procedures. If we, you know, we have this information, we should be able to hold this person accountable. I feel like that loses the plot. because it doesn't have to seesaw like between these two extremes, you know, like you can address the issues with that process without criticizing the fundamental need or, you know, like the basic justification for it, because we fought damn hard to reach that justification. And now you want to roll back the clock and go back to like, I don't know what, like quartering in the public square. I mean, it's just, it's kind of ridiculous that, I mean, so that's one part of it, but the other thing you said, right. And again, um, in a separate conversation with somebody else, I, I, I call this something and get, they didn't take too well to it uh, because you're having a conversation about, you know, how you feel con- the need to conform to uh, what other people are saying, especially with sensitive subjects, because you don't want to be the outlier. You don't want to be the guy with the problematic opinions. You don't want to be toxic. You don't want to be all these adjectives that we absolutely love and adore. Right. So you just feel this need to, to conform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that's basically pop culture ideology. That's what I call it. It's 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 just ideology less ideology. And I think it's is. I mean, if 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 your core beliefs and faith and response to things that you think are very delicate subjects depends on what somebody else has to say, and what a group of people, rather a mob essentially, a group of people uh, have to say about it. I mean, then that that, that I mean, that's just disingenuous on a very fundamental level. You know, because I shouldn't have to be perfect. Okay, as like a 25 year old person with whatever little beliefs I have in my life about, you know, this is problematic, that that's not just, this is unequal. I mean, this is, you know, inequality, whatever. And I, I think my principles make me some, you know, fairly decent human being. I should be allowed as that person to also have problematic beliefs. I just should be allowed to because I'm not supposed to be perfect. I'm not supposed to have the right answer to everything because that is insane. In the history of time, nobody's ever been the most perfect version of themselves because otherwise we won't have conversations. Yeah. If I'm not telling you that, you know, if, I, if I'm if i telling all my friends that I'm this, this liberal uh, feminist who really believes in equality and all of that. And, and you know, and, and I uh, I have conversations about impunity and sexual abuse and I say all the right things and I hit all those right beats. But then the thought in my head is that, man, sometimes women really can't drive. <laughs> I'm not saying all women, huh? but some women I'm telling you, have you seen the way they cut you off on the left? They really can't drive. But I just can't say that because, you know, I'm like supremely terrified of like, just absolute rejection from the people I care about. But yeah. thing is, I should be able to say that not because of impunity, but because if that was what I believed and I said it, I'd hope that someone will be able to respond be me like, Hey, listen, man, I get it. Like there are idiotic drivers. But just the association with that being a woman makes no sense. Literally three fourths of the, um, you know, like the fights you're likely to get into in a traffic jam or like the scuffles you're likely to get in a traffic jam are going to be with toxic men. So then that takes away from the fact that, you know, that that you, you believe that some people aren't good drivers. Literally in like for most of my life, if I had to like look at all the potential traffic scumsheds, it's usually horrible men who don't know how to drive. Yeah. Objectively true. So, but that should maybe be the response to me if I said, you know, some really can't drive, but I should be able to see it. Yeah. It's problematic, of course, but see it. True. You know, like.
0: No, I think I'd rather just call you a sexist pig and ask you to shut up and drop the call. <laughs> just so uh, much more convenient.
1: It's very convenient. That's the thing, right? Like cancer culture is convenient. It's comforting, uh, and it's all things that are lazy, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't change anything it doesn't seek to like fundamentally disrupt the status quo or whatever but it just helps you feel good about yourself so we can sleep well at night you know
0: exactly. uh,
1: and yeah. that's the bottom line I mean
0: and we're seeing this affect our um, tv show and creative process now because so much of this stuff that we're watching now um, gets into so much controversy about Uh, the characters identities and sexualities and um, the jokes that they made or didn't make and so uh, creative process is now becoming less risky and we want to see content that makes us feel better about our own opinions and ideologies and it's essentially not making any of us better people it's not pushing conversations forward um, it's not introducing new ideas it's not causing any disruptions um it, it's creating this one puritan culture around us where it's the same ideas and it's the same thoughts and that's essentially been the problem with Indian culture right like it's been the same love stories it's been the same Bollywood masala because um, everybody is quite complacent in um, you know their opinions and where they come from and I mean it is the country of the great Indian middle class, which does not want to be shaken up. No matter what mobility you achieve economically, there is still a lot of complacency in wanting to protect and restrict our traditions in our conservative notion. And I think that is why it's interesting that in India specifically, um, the right is better at canceling than the left. Um, And, and, but 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 yeah, at least the um the privileged uh generation, our generation at least, the younger ones with more exposure to Western cultures, um, are watching newer and more interesting content that is challenging. And I think that's how we're able to even have this conversation. But of course, that comes with a lot of privilege. Uh, but it is sadder to see. Um, say our parents or um, you know our our teachers from school to just sort of have the same ideas hold the same opinions they've held for the last 20 years and in fact become a lot more toxic become a lot more secure in their opinion because the way uh, the left is bringing up new opinions is isn't doing it quite constructively or fruitfully?
1: Uh, long rants can make a lot of sense, I think. Uh, but this is this idea, right, like, uh, of dooming the conversation before it even starts. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we can't pretend like that didn't have a complete direct and proximate role in this huge surge in conservatism, conservatism and, and right wing uh, beliefs just happening right under everybody's noses. Like people who generally have certain, certain liberal dispositions, whatever. But, you know, happening right under your nose and then you wake up during the elections and be like, oh God, there are a lot of people who believe these things. It happened in the States. We saw it happen in in India here as well. Uh, And we can't pretend like that didn't happen because we doomed conversation from the start, right? Mm -hmm. That, oh, listen, come on. You can't be saying that sexist nonsense man like I mean just stop talking you're an absolute idiot you know and then that's just supposed to convince this other guy that yes I am an absolute idiot thank you for letting me know (laughs) you know like when did anybody ever change their mind because they were being screamed at you know or just being told that you're an absolute blithering idiot and you shouldn't even exist nobody ever changed their minds because they were screamed at I certainly wouldn't uh, with the uh, little amount of self-respect I think I have Or I don't expect most people to Either you know, we feel like you know, a need to introspect or whatever after being shunned, screamed, and possibly humiliated with in front of other people. Nobody's ever done that. And the idea is that when you say you know, you reach across and have a conversation, people think that a conversation has to be like a nice little fluff piece, and we say romantic things to each other, uh, and we're like, oh my god, but we're all one, and we let's go in in faith to whatever you know, and and so that that's the imagination you have when you say reach across the table. But what you really mean with reach across the table is if you believe fu- that some, something I've said is fundamentally wrong, you have to be able to explain to me why you think that is mm. in a discussion. And I think, you know, you raise the the issue with the left, you know, left not taking its own advice. That's so true, but that also has something to do with certain left traditions that I think in at least where we are right now as a people uh, and as societies, um, you know, they have certain traditions, that I think just don't work. Uh, and, and that, that constant need to go back to those traditions is honestly doing more harm than it is doing any good. The, the, deepest of those traditions being debate mm. uh, and not debate in the more broader sense of the word, but in the most narrowest sense that the, you, ha- I have to argue you to depth. I have to argue you to the point of irrelevance. I don't have to get you to agree or make sense. That's only like 30% of it, but I have to fundamentally make you know that you are wrong and your arguments are absolutely baseless and illogical. Mm. And that's a good approach to public conversation is, I mean, it's maybe not going to achieve what you think is going to achieve. Right. But if, if I, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, um, for kids, uh, because with, with, with children, uh, which is a context that I do have like some idea of, I think the point is well made there. uh, you know, you have various adolescents, uh, committing sexual offenses, engaging in problematic sexual behavior. Now they're supposed to be part of like, you know, the juvenile justice system so they're not treated criminally in the same way that adults are supposed to be treated the point of this juvenile justice system that we've created is supposed to be fundamentally rehabilitative restorative it's supposed to actually because the idea is that children unlike adults have the potential to change the basic premise of it right now how do you get uh a child engaging or an adolescent engaging in problematic sexual in like sexually inappropriate behavior with say like a 16 year old uh sexually abusing an eight-year-old or trying to perform a sexual act on an eight-year-old How do you get them to understand that this is deeply problematic? That requires you to first understand where this person comes from. Now, this 16 year old, very likely hasn't been to a school, has never received an education, uh, has two parents who are working, who are manual laborers. So they don't exactly have the time to spend with their children, helping them out with homework because they're literally working 16, 17 hours a day to put food on the table. And you have this kid who's never been to school, been, you know, like uh, just spending a lot of time, like a... in typically harsh community contexts uh, and eventually found his way to like various child labor sort of gigs to just uh contribute to the family income. Okay. And this person is spending time with some, say a 19, 20 year olds, older peers who aren't just peers, but their role models as well. So he's modeling his behavior on the basis of this. And they're showing him like really violent porn, uh, you know, um, and not just porn, like porn videos, but like a, a prom that's they're in like multiple states in the country now, actual rape videos are also circulated as as porn, essentially and sold and whatever. So this video is being shown to like the sixteen-year-old chap, and and they like, you not If you you know you like you. Where is your manhood? You're just like tu, You're a sixteen-year-old child. <laughs> you can't even do this. This is how you become a real man, dude. And, you know, and that sort of communication on a daily basis, and then he spend time, whatever possible alcohol involved, whatever you, he's engaging in with that peer group. And then eventually he's like, there are multiple internalizations in his head. You know, like we go back to this concept that we use in our work called the inner voice. You know, his inner voice is that how the I, I'm also a real man. I can also be a real man. I don't have to be a kid. Uh, you know, I can prove myself. Uh, I also want to know about these things. Why shouldn't I know about it? I'm not anybody's kid. I, I can, I'm very capable of being my own man. So that's the internalization. And then he engages in like this, you know, fundamentally, I mean, that situation is a mix of curiosity, desire to experiment and also shame associated with being, you know, chastised in this manner. And then he sexually abuses that eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Now that is the context through which he's sexually abused this eight-year-old. Now, if your response to the 16 year old is like, what, an I mean, you're just like, a, you're a heinous person. You're a terrible person. I don't know. I want to see you like just the sight of you disgusts me. Mm-hmm. If that, that is your response. Then this, like the 16 year old, just like, I don't understand. I don't get it. I'm just trying to fit in doing what everybody else did. What I was told you're supposed to do in order to be a doll man. And now you're telling me like I'm some terrible person because of it. I don't understand. Like what I, why, what I did is so wrong. Everybody does it. It's it's fine, mm. but you sit down with it. Like, can you explain to him? you give like basic life skills, education and life skills are so important in typically in, in the context of like sexually predatory, predatory behavior, like for children, especially because a lot of uh, sexual offenses are actually come to because of lack of life skills, awareness, and it sounds so simple, but it's really important, you know. So you tell them that, listen, why is it problematic to have sex with an eight-year-old? Give me a reason. Not just because it's, oh, because a child, uh, nobody cares, that. that's not an actual reason. It's problematic because an eight-year-old does not have the capacity to consent. Mm. An eight-year-old does not have the cognitive ability required to be able to understand what all sexual intercourse involves, what does a sexual act involve, is this something that will give me pleasure, is this something I want to engage with, can I then consent? An 8 year old obviously does not have the, uh, the capacity to, to say those things, to think in that manner and to respond. And therefore, even if you didn't physically coerce that 8 year old, but just told them you were going to, you know, through you introduce it as, as a play activity, uh, you know, take them to a sexual area and you're saying that no, this is just a game between the two of us or whatever, and then you sexually abuse the child, that's why it's sexual abuse, because you're essentially engaging in a sexual act with someone who can't consent, who does not have the capacity to consent. And then maybe this person listening will be like, okay, fine. If I engage in sexual behavior with someone, I-, I would like to know that I have the capacity to consent only then is it, you know, is it okay? So I just think that, you know, I mean, obviously, so I went in a bit of a tangent in like a child context, but I think that applies uh, to people generally also you have to be able to explain to someone you absolutely hate you can hate my guts but you have to tell me why what i did is wrong you have to explain that to me because if you need me to change then you have to fix that you know and and here's the here and then here's the question that we all i don't know suppose answer in, in our own capacities do you want to solve rape or do you want to solve that rapist mm. do you want to address rape or do you want to address that rapist if you want to address that rapist then we can do the charade you know we can go on cycles of canceling and we'll be fine but if you want to address rape then that cycle of canceling is not doing anything for you if you want to address deep seated you know like homophobia you want to address like xenophobia or racism or all of these things then addressing only the racist the sexist uh, you know what this transphobic person or comedian or whatever addressing that person is not going to fix your issue so yeah
0: that was that was excellently said um, to you know understand that we're a product of our system of our families and what we're taught at school. And so far throughout our entire education, we've learned that things that we've learned in school can be wrong things that we've seen and picked up from our family members can be wrong behavior. And so if you don't have Good role models or sources from which you can learn, there is very little chance that you will know how to be a better person. So, we have to understand that we are a product of our systems and where we come from. And it is very likely that no matter how woke I am, I could still be unwoke on some things five years later or 10 years later. And that is the hope that we, we need to hold on to is that if somebody does tell you what is wrong and why it's wrong, that you have the capacity to be better. That's where your empathy comes in. That's where your accountability comes in, because you need to be held accountable to have accountability. In cancel culture, you're not held accountable. You're just told what you are and you're supposed to just accept that. Um, so, yeah, th- that was... That was actually a really well-made point, I would say. And um, I was watching this one uh, interview with Trevor Noah. And this is a point that he makes, um, which um, in relation to, your do you want to solve rape or uh, the rapist, is that he said it in relation to comedians, is that when comedians make a joke um, on something that you're not, you don't really see a lot of jokes being made of or spoken about in such a way. Uh, people get offended at the joke of it rather than the issue of it. So if there is, um, uh, uh, there is a joke about police brutality, people are offended on the joke rather than uh, the issue of police brutality itself. Like there is so much less outrage on the fact that it still happens and uh, it happens rampantly and there is no accountability for it. Neither the system provides for it and neither social media in its own uh, bubbles provide for it, right? It also, ha- But I see why that happens, right? It goes back to our initial point of that we feel like we have no control over such things. So we rather control how they're spoken about um, and we'd rather fix try to have control over these trivial issues amongst ourselves you know don't talk about it that way it is a serious issue but that's where the conversation ends okay okay, fine this is a serious issue but what next how do we how do we take this forward right like what um let's 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 talk about why this is an issue and Do we actually understand it and what can we do to not make it an issue anymore? Right. Um, So, cancel culture, I think, is very surface level, um, very pointless, frivolous activity where we're all just exercising. the idea that oh, if we had power, this is how we would exercise it, and that's a scary thought, right? And and it's the whole sorry to bring in Game of Thrones here, but it's that whole we're not breaking the wheel. Then you know you're not you're not doing anything different. So even if you had a morally just idea of canceling somebody, um, you're still perpetrating a sort of injustice, which is even worse. It has worse ramifications in the future
1: more offended at the joke than the issue that the joke is trying to really highlight right and the idea i mean i'm no expert on comedy but i feel like the basic requirement of a joke is just that there has to be a setup and a punchline i mean that's basically core i mean you you can do different forms of comedy but like maybe just the basic idea of, of what like the anatomy of a joke if you will you know like a like a story has to ideally have a beginning middle and an end uh, and you can do whatever you want with that, but it needs to have this, that basic requirement. Otherwise, it's just incoherent, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is the reason I raise this is because I need you to tell the joke a certain way for it to be palatable to me.
0: Mm.
1: Like, I I think if you phrased it this way, then it would be funny, you know? But if you didn't if you didn't phrase it that way, then it's not funny. It's just problematic. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's just a, such a chindi nuance, okay? Like, it's... Because you're essentially disagreeing with the way this person is making, uh is essentially talking about this issue that they also think is serious. And if you don't believe that person is serious about this issue, then you don't have any reason to be endeared by this person. Because you know that at some level you're also on the same page as this person, but his way of engaging in conversation is to just raise a riot through the jokes they tell. Then you know, like that, I mean, that's that's how you relate to a comedian. And I feel like Dave Chappelle works exactly in that in that space um uh you know uh the reason is sh- his version of shock comedy was i think appealing to so many people is uh you know not because of of the horrendous things that come out of his mouth literally throughout his shows but because of this strange enduring nature of the fact that both of us are in agreement this is really screwed up but like your your perspective on those, on this issue is hilarious you know and like through making us laugh, we also have to think about these contradictions and these hypocrisies that, that we have, yeah. you know, and uh, and he just to give an example, you know, I mean, Shabal's made jokes about going to, I think he was in Detroit and uh, he was like, he got really high before a show and he absolutely blew it and the audience like booing him and stuff. So then, you know, he made, made a joke about like distributing chewing gum, spending like a fortune on distributing chewing gum amongst all the homeless in Detroit, just so that they could eat and still be hungry now i mean just that joke objectively if you just read it like a transcript sounds terrible okay yeah. but like but you know you have to understand the context of the joke and and you know like him blowing at that initial you know like just destroying it and whatever and then and then the reason that joke is endearing is because he did this joke uh, i think that that particular show was in detroit and he did this joke and then that was like him get like getting to know his detroit audience and they were like they were also laughing along you know because okay this is there's a reason for that joke and then you have other jokes, you know, like he's made about, uh, I think, because you said police brutality, mm-hmm. this joke about uh, this woman who uh, was like seriously assaulted by cops, you know, and and he, and he, I think he said something along the lines of, you know, I mean, you could tell this woman was no boxer, her stance was, was off. She was taking too many punches and stuff like that. And he's making a joke about essentially like how her form was off and she's taking too many punches and all of that. So this is clearly no boxer and stuff like that. So you can use say, Oh my God, Dave Chappelle supports violence against women. Mm-hmm. know uh or maybe understand the joke in the context of him also hating police brutality i mean this is a this is a black man in the united states of america he doesn't need a primer from anybody on on what racism looks felt and sounded like you know uh but that was a joke you know and and so you have i mean you have different so that that, that's like this the shock value of making a joke you know and and one of the things i keep going back to just i mean i'll get off Chappelle in like a second one of the things i keep going back to I think Sticks and Stones was it, Uh, he did like a small bit where he was talking about his time in Chappelle Show and uh, how, you know, he would keep hearing from like essentially their standards and practices department, their censorship guys basically to say that you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, whatever. And uh, I think that was when he was talking about the use of the word faggot, right? He was was talking about the use of that word in his, uh, in Chappelle Show and, and, and how, you know, like basically these guys came up to him and said, dude, you can't use that word. It's horrendously offensive. Right. And he was like, but, you know, I did written a skit and I was thinking from the of a skit and I said this word and I wasn't able to understand, but I was like, I don't want to create an issue. So, you know, I, I, I left the room and I'm like, fine, we'll get rid of the word. You don't need to create that sort of controversy. And then he was like, but well, then I had a thought. So I went back to him and I said, why, uh, why then can I use, you know, the word nigger, the N word with such impunity? Why can I use that with such impunity on the show? Uh, because that is also a, a horribly oppressive word with with very terrible connotations right uh and a word that he's with his lived experience very well aware of all what those connotations exactly mean you know to, to him to, to people who look like him to his family whatever and uh then you know it's very and that's honestly one of the favorite one of my the best moments of of him on stage I think i've seen and and this lady responds saying that uh because dave you're not gay and his response to that is like, I'm forgetting her name, but he says Laura or something, you know, some typical white name and she, and he was like, Laura, whatever. Uh, I'm also not a nigger. That was his, that was his statement. And I, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to like, uh, just say this now because I feel like this would this be an issue, but I'm using the word because I'm quoting and that was the word that was said, right? Like, but I feel like it's important to do that when you're quoting somebody. I can't be saying quoting the N word and the F word. I like, sound like an idiot. You have to quote somebody <laughs> if you're quoting somebody. You know, so, yeah. so that's what he said. And that was such a powerful moment, but here's my thing. I, I really wanted to, to, to like tell this friend about that particular, watching that particular moment and be like, this is Chappelle when he's like killing it, you know, but I, in the conversation, I hear a small hiccup, which I thankfully, you know, I've had time to think about it since then. I was like, how do I say this to my friend about that really good segment in that show without saying the word?
0: yeah
1: you know so like I and I, I couldn't say this to someone else and then I had a whole conversation about it and I was like oh my god if I say this word am I engaging in like am I supporting it and it's like a whole thing and then I was like dude I, I if I have to quote somebody I'm quoting that person man like I still don't know where the model lines in this lie, but if I'm quoting somebody I'm quoting them yeah. because if I have to give you that moment right yeah. if I would tell you about that moment I need to say the damn word you know so uh that moment but like so you have like comedians with their engaging with their shock value and but the other thing you have to talk about with Chappelle is how all of this smartness when it comes to his humor, I mean, obviously doesn't translate to his transphobic jokes yeah. because that's an experience that he doesn't get. So that basic endearment you share with Dave when he's making these really shocking jokes about police brutality and stuff, because you feel like you're on the same page. You don't get that when he makes the transphobic jokes because you're like, Dave, I don't think we're on the same page about this. Mm. You know, you feel like this guy is probably maybe not taking the time to educate himself uh, about, you know, like, literally people's existence and that isn't to say that he's a hateful person because I think he said this in a lot of specials how you know he supports any movement against oppression whatever and he says this for people like those are platitudes because and there's a point there that you're not making a real effort to understand us because your jokes don't have that fundamental basic endearment that we saw from you in other other jokes you know because I don't feel like you actually understand me so when you're making jokes then it doesn't feel like you're just using the shock of that joke to tell a very important point to say a very important point. It just looks like you're hitting me. It just looks like you're, you're just fucking, you know, like you're just, you're going at it and you, there's, there's no larger meaning to this joke you just made. And I think all, all of that was, I mean, optimized in the euphoria of him going, I'm team turf, you know, and I think, I think that really capped off that. And then even I cringe, man, And I'm a Chappelle fan. Okay. And I really, really cringed. I was like, I don't feel that endearment. I don't see it, you know, like,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, and he could have just been saying that because Chappelle, this is also a strong likelihood. He just said it because he just wanted to say it. Yeah. But even then, you know, it's that endearment is not there. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think this obsession with uh, the joke, you know, rather than the issue is quite, uh, that's also, I think, stems from this desire to be lazy. Mm-hmm. Because to talk about the issue is a lot more work. So I'm exhausting, you know, as opposed to just censoring people for singing a word in a song that they should not be singing while rapping the song or whatever. I mean, in general, if that's your issue, maybe don't rap the song because you're rapping it in a certain voice that's not yours anyway. True. You know, so like, it's not like the, where do you draw that line? But whatever, we have this and it's acceptable now so you don't, you don't do it. But uh, I think this focus on the joke or, you know, like the content as opposed to the issue that you're supposed to be talking about, like transphobia, very real issue, or racism you talk about as a very real issues uh, and why you, you know, the conversation there isn't about oh my god let's cancel Dave Chappelle but the conversation is about why does someone who's typically one would consider a very smart comedian just so unable to understand this yeah. you know like uh, and then you get into a conversation about how some of the most violence against uh you know like trans women uh has comes from like cis-head black men as well
0: mm-hmm. so that
1: then you have like uncomfortable conversations about where Dave Chappelle figures in that identity because he could have one identity where Obviously, he carries, you know, he carries an identity that's been oppressed, but in another context, he could also be the perpetrator, you know, so, uh, I mean, or at least be a, have an identity that that's unanimous or been associated with violence against, you know, like a certain group of people. So, uh, but those conversations you don't want to have, So you just want to have something about, you know, let's this cancel Dave, because, you know, he said this shocking and awful thing. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, yeah.
0: To, I mean, Doesn't not to defend sense. him, but um, I think even when he says things uh, like making these transphobic jokes that didn't land well, that were quite misinformed, uh, like, say, for example, when he tried defending JK Rowling and tried defending her right to essentialize a woman, it, it's going it, it is sort of denying trans people a sort of personhood right because you are again then essentializing the biological aspect of being a woman like the example that he takes is that all of us had to go through a woman to be here but again that's not the only thing that being a woman is right like but yeah I mean there are a lot of problems with that but but the fact remains that things are always ambivalent even if they are wrong they contribute to another aspect of things Um, and that obviously is even for me for example right before my education I was pretty sexist Um, I'm pretty sure I've really, I
1: I grew up homophobic for the longest time yeah
0: yeah <laughs> I grew up homophobic and, and I, I have a queer identity now and and it, it's very interesting and Everything that I am today is has contributed like it's because of a certain amount of unlearning and um, somebody put in the effort to tell me what I knew and was wrong and why it was wrong and if I was cancelled, I don't think I would know half the things in the world. I, I would not know what to call sexist. I would not know what to call injustice. I would probably be the same person making the same jokes. Like how I see like my parents around me nobody's ever told them especially like my my dad for example like nobody tells dads when they're wrong right going to cancel my dad i am not going to call him sexist to his face that's just not going to happen right um and it's a painful process but you somehow you do get into it so i think if we did sort of essentialize um there is the the Speech as being a very responsible thing. And if you uh, mess that up, you've done the worst thing on earth. I think that's pretty problematic in itself. You can't essentialize anything to just one thing. You know, we have to sort of look at the ambivalent nature of things um, that you've understood a joke in a different way. And I've understood a joke in a different way. There, There is just no homogeneity right like we're all feminism is not all one women the queer movement is not all one queer movement right like nobody is the same and and so I don't know like that that's the one thing about cancel culture it makes all of us the same it makes us fe- feel like all of us have the same ideas same opinions and it's it the just,
1: interesting thing I don't think it makes all of us the same but it just makes all of us the same performatively Yeah, in the sense that I could be objectively the worst person on the planet I could believe that listen the people that I want to hook up with are literally just there because I derive sexual pleasure from them and like there's nothing else to this human being that I care about in the least you're basically an object of like attention you know I could be I could believe that as like a core belief of my system but every time I talk you would say all the nice liberal things I could say things that would let you know that I use the right pronouns that I use the right words that you know uh, that I don't I don't call a professor ma'am I call professor professor and professor you know so I know I, I'm I'm, doing all I'm hitting all the right beats you know and 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 uh, you know I um you know and yeah and uh, so I'm I'm just hitting those beats that you require of me to find me acceptable and I will say these right things in every conversation that we have and you will just never know that I'm a terrible human being mm. uh which is a problem I think people actually are seeing now because you have like friends and you have college and stuff and technically, if all of us are such lovely people, then nobody should have any disagreements, no? Yeah. Because all of us have the right politics, we're all enlightened. So then where is all the drama coming from? Because people aren't telling you what they feel a lot of the time because they've gotten used to hitting these beats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no growth there. There's just listen, you want to get into trouble, you say this. You don't want to get into trouble, don't say this. You can believe it, but don't say it. Uh, and you know, so you get into this idea of what is a you know, uh, a not racist thing to say and what is a racist thing to say without addressing perhaps the feelings behind what you've said. Because feelings aren't racist or progressive or like regressive or conservative. Feelings are just there. They're just feelings. You have anger, sadness, love, whatever. And from that can stem various kinds of responses to, to different people. I read this very interesting article by this this friend, um, you know, he was talking about his time. He studied in the States for a bit and he was talking about being, you know, essentially... You know, really like engaging with his woke identity and saying all the right things and being like this early stand up guy. Uh, and, uh, and he talks about like this one time he was in an elevator, I think with a black woman, and um, she was whatever she was going somewhere and, and he was he clicked like some flow and there was some, whatever disagreement there because she was like, what, well, you know, you're clicking the wrong floor, something she basically bit his head off. It was like an old woman basically who bit his head off because he's not pressing the right floor, or you know, he's standing to whatever, like with his boxes and stuff it was some stupid disagreement. And in that moment he just you know like um, he he writes this okay he's like I, I was just so irritated and I had a rough day and like this this the thought was I can't remember what it was but it was some something along the lines of you know like some women can't drive type of stuff you know like like oh wow, you know why are black women so loud or one of those sort of things mm-hmm. you know and then immediately checked himself and be like how did I say how did I think this? He didn't say, it. how did I think this where did this thought come from? I'm a terrible human being this is not who I am and all of this and he had, had like a meltdown. And he spent some time reflecting on it and he wrote about it and he was like, because the the emotion that came from was maybe anger, you know, upset, whatever it was, you know, and, and from, and given the right circumstances, just that desire to lash out, yeah. you know, which he did in his head. He didn't even say it out loud, but he like still, you know, he, he said it in his head, which is like a horrible thing. Oh my God, you're not woke right now. Uh, so like, though you have those thoughts, right? Anger, sadness, these are all universal. And in yeah. the way they're expressed, sometimes it's expressed in like prejudiced, racist, sexist, whatever ways. But if you learn how to police what you say, then you can feel all of these things without saying it and still be a terrible human being, but just find the right moments to be terrible. Uh, And that's a really, I mean, that's a a really scary thought. Like, and, you know, I'm not going to have this conversation pretending like I'm divorced from all of this because like in school, you know, football rivalries, classic, you know, like, Angsty uh, dude, bro, sort of a thing in school, and all like very, you know, and all the all the guys are very into their football rivalries because I don't know, like it's just part of the male identity in Bangor schools, at least I think. And you're supposed to go through this rite of nonsensical passage, Uh and you know, so I was a like, uh, uh, United fan, and then there were like other friends who were Chelsea fans or whatever. So we constantly find ways to attack each other on social media, Uh and this was the early days on Facebook where we definitely should not have been on that app. <laughs> uh, you know, and with, with, you know, there's no sense of filter, or whatever. This is just like a new social media thing. You can do whatever. I think this was like in the sixth grade or something. Yeah. Uh, just like Facebook had just come then, and uh, I want to like take a dig at these like Chelsea friends of mine because y- they beat United, and uh, so I shared a picture of I think two Chelsea footballers, Lampard and Terry. They were doing like exercises, but the angle of the shot was basically one person like bending over and the other person standing behind him, so looking like they were getting it on. Right, and and then my caption to that, the enlightened soul that I was, Chelsea gang in public. Okay, so that was literally what I said, and it was just like because you know how I want to attack them. This is like a rival, rival football, football whatever, and I have to like you know this thing. And uh, my like just uh, and fast forward many years later, I was seeing one of these memories thing I keep popping up on Facebook. The only thing I, only reason I like them is because they give me an option to get rid of absolute nonsense I posted back in the day. So it's like a cleanup drive for me. I'm not even going to like, you know, just, I'm not going to make light of that. Honestly, it's a, it's a cleanup drive because mm-hmm. uh, the school environment that we were in back in the day, we said some horrible things and believed some horrible things. The only difference between me and people from the, that school is to believe the same things because I had decent parents yeah. I had decent family. Was like, like one day, I think my dad caught me saying something. Really homophobic. He's like, the hell, what the hell did you just say? And then had a whole conversation with me. Yeah. Not everybody has that. And that's yeah. a resource that you have,
0: yeah. uh,
1: you know, so um, yeah, so I, I saw like this post, I think like nine, what one of these 10 years later memories sort of thing showed up on Facebook, and I was mortified. Okay, because like, it's objectively a horrendous thing to say, but I don't know, if someone be like, apologize for what you said back in the day, apologize right now. How dare, how dare you say what you said? I'd be like, nah, buddy, i ain't doing that. Yeah,
0: uh, you know, because
1: um, the simple reason not being being not because I'm not apologetic. You know, someone says that, man, how could you say that? My first response is, yeah, because I was mortified. I'm like, it's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. But if you require me to take ownership of it now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're out of luck. It's not happening. It's just not happening. I was in sixth grade in school, you know, an absolute moron. Wouldn't know to quote Sayanath from a very different context. Didn't know his ass from his elbow. And, you know, just was talking nonsense with no no the grooming, no understanding of what you're saying and, and the weight that your words can carry. Today I do, and because I had like pens, but I know a lot of people from school who didn't have the same pen pens that I do, and, and like led very different lives, and have gone to hold exactly those beliefs even yeah. till today.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. I mean, that's a very simple way of thinking about this. You think about usually in the context of people offending or doing something, you know, committing a crime or whatever. Uh, but you can actually apply it to microaggressions to prejudice in any context, right? this thing called the social stress model where you look at like that any act of aggression or microaggression or actual criminal offense or whatever is the result of like a very simple formula okay and looks at risk factors versus divided by protective factors so if your risk factors are more than protective factors simple logic being that you're more likely to uh to do something that's terrible but your protective factors are more than your risk factors then you're less vulnerable to doing something that's terrible uh, and what are these risks? And then there's like a breakup of it very, like just very briefly, You know, like your risk factors are basically the distressing thing that you're doing, which could be in this case could be a microaggression. That plus the normalization, how normal is this in your environment for you to be doing this distressful thing? Plus the experience, do you derive benefit, social capital, whatever else it is from saying and doing this terrible thing? Like, you know, people liking my Chelsea's gain in public post and be like, oh God, yeah, man, how so funny, you already got those Chelsea pricks, you know? So then is there, a distressing circumstance. That is the normalization in school and there's a positive experience attached to it. So the risk factors are great. The protective factors are then like, you know, uh, skills, resources and supports, basically skills in the sense that like your, your life skills, like, you know, your critical thinking abilities to actually think about what you're doing and whether you need to be conforming to this horrible school tradition, mm-hmm. your resources being the knowledge you have, access to knowledge and then your supports being your, your family and your socialization, your main social environment. My protective factors were great. A lot of the other people's protective factors not so much. So the distinction in that sense between how great of a person I am versus how terrible of a person they are, this really boils down to a neat little privilege, you know. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. oh, we somehow got math into this conversation. Yeah, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, it was a great conversation um i i like learned a lot thank you so much for taking the time out and speaking with I'm
1: us I, I said this to you earlier but i'll say it here also <laughs> like i mean just this, this podcast is unbe- unbelievably good like it's just it's just like i mean nobody's having these conversations right and i i said this to you earlier as so well you have these conversations but i'm just like too cowardly to actually you know like have these conversations with people because you know then you're worried about blowback and all of those other things. But mm-hmm. I think what the unredacted podcast does is like centers this conversation, and I think those these conversations are damn important. So thanks for having me. I think yeah.